0: Welcome to Growing Unicorns, where every week Holly Chen and me, Karina Edwards, come together with some fun guest hosts at a live interactive discussion where we unpack stories from the trenches while we're working with some of the fastest growing unicorns today. All right. Season two, episode one of Growing Unicorns. So excited to be here and so excited to see Holly. Welcome back. And then Jay is joining us. He is a director of Demand Gen on Mattermaid's side. Definitely excited for him to be a part of the conversation. And then we have Bennett Bayer. And so I'd love for you to just intro yourself to the group, to the audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and just kind of your story.
1: Well, at 100,000 foot view, I, I would say I am an emerging technology product marketer. Okay. Almost all of my 10 years, with the exception of Huawei, have been disasters. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, just it literally four times when I came in on the first day, they said, we're so excited to have you here. Why did you take the job? <laughs> so a lot of what I had to do was turnaround, fix, come up with unique solutions. Some people are turnaround experts. Some people are growth. That's kind of my niche, though I've done just about everything one can imagine. I have conceived, built, and launched 1,500-plus new products, services, applications, driven for Zero to 350 million dollars. Successes overall about 77 billion dollars in new revenue during my various tenures, the most notable of which was formerly being the global chief marketing officer of Huawei in China. Nice so nice. I, you know, I did the first mobile app store, the world's first digital camera.
0: You've done a few things, just a little. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been yeah. I've been very lucky and blessed. It's amazing.
2: I've actually seen a few big Chinese companies recruiting Silicon Valley executives and Huawei and Xiaomi and all that. How did you come across the Huawei job and like, what was your thinking process and what pulled the trigger for you to take that job?
1: Money. a friend in the department of state actually suggested i not take the job but i'm sorry feeding my family is more important i was working at a company called avnet most people are not familiar with but they're a 35 billion dollar technology distributor but online like ingram micro or tech data they are 10 times more profitable however they don't pay terribly well they'll pay you know they'll hire someone like us but give you a buck 50 a buck 25 plus commissions on the growth so i you know my peers there were all very highly qualified executives so when Huawei came and offering four times the base yeah okay i could be bought the interesting thing is that i learned very quickly that though you're hired and you're hired into a a senior position there was a lot of impacts with culture and they really don't want the expats there as particularly middle management but they're a necessary evil and so what they try to do is hire someone in and get everything they can out of them within six months and dump them so that I lasted three years. I'm, I'm quite proud of and They now. have three people, all Chinese doing my job, but that was the gig. So I don't have any regrets.
2: Mm -hmm. And your scope was the global business or like any business that's outside of China?
1: I was in the global chief marketing officer. I was in charge. I had a staff of 47. All right, this is insane. I had a staff of 4,700 dotted line over 60,000 engineers. I had 947 different product lines under me, including managed services, because in the world, there are 309 big boy carriers and mobile operators. Yeah. Huawei runs 179 of them. So if you're Telmex, Carlos Slim, or Vodafone, it's a Huawei guy in a Vodafone shirt. That is their core of their business.
2: Yeah, that's fascinating. Because when I was in college, Huawei was one of the top employers on campus. Everyone wants to get a job at Huawei. It's incredible that you're managing such a big business, especially, you know, coming from Silicon Valley, an American background. What were the cultural differences or management differences being a global CMO versus a CMO for an American company based in here?
3: I would cite
1: three things. First off, the board. The board are not technology people. They're business people. And so the discussion is around finance and Return on working capital. Uh, Should we launch more cloud services? Should we build a new storage array? Or can we buy another vineyard in France and make more money? Where are we going to get the best bang for the money we make every year? That's the discussion, which is quite unique. The other second one is the way Huawei is run. As you're probably aware, there are three main technical universities in China that's Huawei. And if you look at Huawei, they rotate the CEO every 18 months. The reason why is generally the hiring comes out of one of those three universities. And so it's not age, it's not sex. It's kind of like high school. It's the click. Corinne, if you are my boss, you get promoted, I go along with you. And our click, and that's why Mr. Wren has rotates it so that the three no one click is in charge and country that's a pretty interesting dynamic the other one is and the most impactful was that they were dysfunctional in that middle management senior management wants the expats recognizes a need and there's a niche middle management despises that because they want to go do their own thing the problem is that they yelled and screamed at the troops who are generally kids And so I would sit in meetings and, you you know, the grand poopah would yell and scream and we're going to do da, da, da. And you look around at the faces and you could see the wheels turning. And afterwards, Holly, I'd come up to you and say, well, what did you think of what the big boss said? "Um, Ah, yeah. Uh, Let's go to lunch. And the whole thing was, look, in 10 years, you are going to be the boss. Do things different. And that I am most proud of having a small impact on changing
3: that part of culture so, Ben,na you said a little bit earlier, your core area of specialty as a CMO is often coming in kind of as this like fixer or turnaround role or businesses that need a turnaround to some degree. I'm curious, is Huawei a, another reflection of that in the trials that you're talking through now? Is it kind of the growth arm? Is it the like, kind of rekindling or fixing the challenges? I mean, how would you describe coming on to Huawei? Huawei was the other side of the coin which is you want to go faster. Okay. I got there they were doing I
1: think 32 billion and but 11% year on year growth. So I took them to 56 billion and 17.9% growth. You want oh. to go faster. And in doing that you have to break things very often. Most notable, my first board meeting, they expressed a desire to increase the enterprise business. Okay. So that's for a technology company. That's, that's a no brainer. How many people do we have? Oh, we have 24,000 people around the world. Huh? Okay. Huh? Huh? And I just started laughing. And they're like, <laughs> What? And I'm like, Do you understand that? You see, Huawei sells Huawei. This was the problem. And so, you know, use humor to soften the blow. I said, Look, IBM has 4 million salespeople. Hewlett Packard has three and a half million. Cisco, three million. got more people knocking on doors. Why? They've got VARs and system integrators. They sell through other people. Hmm. So maybe we should think about it like a little math formula. Hardware plus software plus network plus smart people equals something unique. Hmm. And that started the whole, oh, maybe we need to partner with somebody. So, for example, to grow the cloud business, exponentially, I wouldn't cut a deal with the SAP because we had a, a product fusion cube that could make HANA run eight times faster than the Cisco VCE for a third of the cost. So now I've got every SAP guy in the world selling Huawei kit and Huawei gets the support business. I mean, it, it was, you got to break it down. That little math formula is, works quite effectively to make your point.
2: CMOs, uh, they say, have the shortest tenure in all the executive roles on average, 18 months. And I would assume that as a new CMO, either in Huawei or other places that you've been, you have to build trust really fast. What are some of the things you do in your first you know, 90 days or as a new CMO to build trust and credibility within the company?
1: It depends on the situation. Huawei was the most fun. Again, because I had this... Cultural problem that I wanted to fix. Now, and I knew this going in, the middle management problem. So I came, the first day one, they had an all hands meeting, literally 5,000 people in an auditorium. Here's Bennett Bear, Grand Poobie, yada, yada, yada. He's done this, 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 this. And I get up there and say, hi, hi. You know, <laughs> guess what? I'm wrong half the time. You have to figure out which half, which no Wilo has ever come in, white devil, has ever come in there and fallen <laughs> on their sword and, and done that. And it's like, Look, kids, I'm going to question everything you do, but you have to question me. Together, we're going to go figure it out. You know, and that's part of the role of being a chief marketing officer is every, it's kind of like being the manager of a sports club. Every lineup is different. And so you have to have the experience without the fear to go and try and do different things depending on what your resources are and what the situation is. Does that answer your question?
2: Yeah. So what I'm hearing is be really open and encourage open discussion and questioning the authority.
1: And again, I am very blessed in that humility. My wife is a real marketer. She did food in her, her entire career. It's not like talking about the difference between the 3270 and the 4690 router. Ooh. When the color of the package on the grocery shelf actually means something, it's a little more challenging. And so very often, at various points, she would often remind me, sometimes not so gently, but quite correctly, that who do you think you are? You're in marketing. Marketing is building bridges between whomever. It's whatever you need to do to drive the business. And marketing, to me, kind of a nice segue into what is marketing. Marketing, to me, is an iceberg. The 10% above the water that everybody sees, that's the digital, the PR, the MarTech, the communications, that's all the fun, fluffy stuff. 90% is under the waterline. The people, nobody sees, it's going to see somebody and getting cooperation and buy-in and how do we make it? How do we support it? And then how do we make money? Wash, rinse, repeat. How do we improve it? And that's not glamorous or sexy, but that's marketing. And you got different problems every day because it's constantly tweaking to make it better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like marketing is doing half of the work to help your sales team make sure that that conversation is clearly understood, right? So whatever this person is buying, they know that they're buying that before they even come to the table. And I think that's definitely shifted big time in B2B marketing where it's like with the internet, with research available and companies having to kind of answer to the customer to have information more readily available is that most people are doing the research right before they even talk to someone to buy. Before a
1: salesman knocks on the door. Yeah. And, and that is a major problem. And I'll compound it. I would say it's kind of... Good. As we're segueing into what is marketing according to Bennett. To me, marketing is how do you sell smart? And I think it's very difficult to be in marketing if you have never carried a bag and sold. Mm-hmm. You have to be the best salesperson in that organization. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and one, to have the credibility. Your team needs to be able to do that as well. So they need to you know, ride with sales and spend time. And any good young marketer, I would encourage them to carry a bag for six months and, just to gain that experience. It's invaluable. It, the best lesson I had when working at Casio, my first real marketing gig, the Japanese teach two things, go and see, I'm sit and read a report and ask why five times. If you think about it, that works pretty well today.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think a question that I had when you were talking about like the role of the CMO was I think, Especially for people that are like, that is their trajectory, or that's what they've claimed they want to do. I think there is confusion, and maybe it's different if you're at a larger company or if you're at a smaller startup. And I think we have enough perspective here to really like dig into this. But I think some people are of the mindset of like, if you're going to be a CMO, like you better know how to go and like check out Google Analytics and pull a report from there and like gain insight. Or there's the other camp where they're like, you need to hire the best Google Analytics person and make sure that person is on your team, right? And have like smarter people surround you. And so I'd just love to hear from the group, like, what camp do you sit on? Are you in the middle? Like, what, what do you think?
1: I would say none of those.
0: <laughs> okay. okay.
1: Um, it was kind of funny. I, I think the Kellogg School of Management or Northwestern, they, they talk about what your CMO will be. They should have at least 10 years of experience. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I would say that more than one organization doing more than one thing, ideally, both B2B and B2C. And let's not forget, 67% of business is B2B. If you add B2B to B, like mining or forestry, and they feed mm-hmm. into a, somebody who builds something, who makes something, who then you then now you're up to 84%. So that's only leaving 16% true someone marketing to an end customer. Now think about, and here's my prediction, within five years, 99% of digital marketers will be out of a job. Anything that can be repeatable, we can program a bot to do it. So the problems with, yeah, okay, a CMO should be able to understand a Google report. More importantly, and again, the title is bandied about much too generally, you know, startup is a CMO. Actually, I, I think, again, world of Bennett, it's only for public companies and certainly only for companies that are more than one trick pony. You've got to have multiple product lines, you know, multiple categories. And if you're going to be a chief, you got to have people under you. Mm -hmm. And that's just the baseline. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I'm curious, Bennett, just to quickly follow up on what you said. What is a CMO's job? How do you actually spend time? What do you focus on?
1: Where do we make money? Where can I spend my time and make the most money in the shortest amount of time with the least effort. And I learned this at Unisys. So when I developed Moso, I split my team. I hired people smarter than me, and I split my team, and I became the referee. I split the product teams into how we made money, not by product category. So lifestyle, enterprise stuff, mobile payments, and infrastructure. And they each had their own CTO. I controlled the factory. had like 3,500 engineers. So what are we going to make? All right, Karina, you're in charge of lifestyle. Jay, you're in charge of enterprise. Holly, you're in charge of mobile payments. What do you want to do that will give us the best paying quickest? I'm a referee. You guys have to come up with a business plan. You're the vice president of whatever, Karina. Mm -hmm. What do you want to do? How can we do it? And together we will vote. Yeah, I know I'm controlling and pulling the strings, but. I control the to-do list and what the factory is going to work on. And we're going to agree as a team as to what is the best thing or the least amount of effort and the least amount of money. And that created a very competitive culture. Again, going back to how Rome became Rome. American culture and business is very much based, I would argue on first Greek and then Roman culture. Rome was this tiny little city. <laughs> Who cares? What they did is they elected two councils. Two guys, they're going to be in charge. I'm going to be in charge today. Holly's going to be in charge tomorrow. We have one year. Basically, Holly and I have to go train up an army, go lay siege to Carthage, beat them, grab all the loot we can before Jay and Karina get to come in next year, and they'll take over all the spoils if we don't do it quickly enough. That made the Roman commanders incredibly aggressive. And that, if you think about Rome as the founding culture for Western civilization and a lot of business, that's the foundation. And so I applied that to my teams, and from Unisys on Huawei and other other tenures, that became my my the way I would work. I'd have teams empower them, let them go, but here are the rules. That have freed me up to go and get them what they needed to do. Do they need some president of transportation to agree? And I'll give you an example. At Unisys, the team came up with putting RFID tags on the baggage. Pretty cool idea, yeah? Huh? Oh, yeah. Hey, tell you what, Karina, you're the president of transportation. Look what we can do. Will you do that? Will you sell that? No. Huh? Oh, okay. Well, well why? Yeah. How about if I let you have all the sales credit? No. How about if I let you have all the sales credit and it doesn't cost you anything? Yeah. Okay. But I tell you what, we're going to keep our shadows in the books because we both work for the same mothership. Right? So I just want to, at the end of the year, show how much I helped you grow your business. That's what a CMO does. It's behind the What do you need to do and get your, you know, you set a high-level strategy, empower your team,
3: and then what do you need to do? Where do you need to insert yourself to be successful? So I, I hear a lot, Ben, at this overarching theme of a CMO kind of being the glue between a lot of different departments to enable growth. And, and I would say that's the, that is the
1: job of marketing. The most efficient organization I ever worked for was the most dysfunctional, nastiest, stabbed you in the back and was infinite. And they were the global reach for every big telephone company in the world. And if you were in AT&T, you left the US, you were on the now, Largest data network. And so I was marketing And in my business area, I was in charge. I set strategy, the goals, everything. Sales had to agree to the goals. They had to buy in. Their bonuses were, and and operations was given a budget slightly under achieving that. So it made it incredibly efficient. And if you wanted to sell, you know, if you were the head of sales and you wanted to add a T1 span over the Atlantic, you would have to increase your bonus threshold to do it. So it made everybody very cognizant of what's going on in the rest of the company and how that, what your decisions impact. And it put everybody's backside on the line. Got very it. efficient. But it, at the same time, it was the most dysfunctional, nasty,
3: stab you in the back place I've ever
1: ever encountered.
3: That's uh, certainly tough. And as we flash forward now, you know, one of the themes that's been popping up for me a lot in discussions and just hearing about CMOs line of work in 2022. You know, if we go off that thought that it's really the glue, I, I've been hearing that a lot of Fortune 500, large corporations, and even hyper-growth companies are reallocating or looking at their budgets in 2022 and moving some of the marketing budget towards digital initiatives, kind of brought on by the pandemic and escalated digital first or digital hybrid And when I read that, that's not to me the typical role of marketing, you know, part of the reason we're having this discussion today. But in that world, going under your, this theme of marketing being the glue, how do you see a CMO's role changing or being altered as they need to embrace these larger enterprise digital initiatives?
1: There are two answers to that. One, again, what are those companies? Who are they? Because I'll bet you they're not B2B. And again, that is the vast majority of business out there. It's not sexy. It doesn't make the headlines. They don't write about it. They're much more happy about, you know, the chief marketing officer of Yelp and their digital initiatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you're making something, it's not sexy. You talk about where Internet of Things and edge computing, hot topic, right? You know what the number one application is? It's a camera looking at an end cap display and how long somebody spends time there. It's a microphone listening to a bearing on an oil platform because if, that, if the frequency changes and that bearing burns out, which is a $50 part, it's a $10 million drill head that's going to fail. In Europe is industry 4.0, which you don't even hear about in the U.S. That's the business. It's not glamorous or sexy. It, it, Internet of Things is just an extension of AIDC and RFID, which has been around for 40 years. Digital is important. It has its place, but there's still salespeople and relationships. It kind of goes back to, I I think, about value proposition. A good value prop is an underrated thing these days because of the internet and people can do so much research. And let's face it, the buyer sees almost everything as equal. Amazon and Walmart wouldn't exist. If, you know, crazy TV Lenny's wouldn't exist if we were not the case, how do you differentiate? And that's where your sales team and the relationship makes a huge difference. And again, that's for the majority of business. For some, you know, for an Uber, different story. But again, an Uber is a one-trick pony. The other thing of digital, if you can do it, it's very easy to replicate if, mm-hmm. if you apply this to a unicorn. And again, having done 27 unique things you know, I launched the first world's first digital camera at Casio. Okay, cool. But I knew six months down the road, the Sony monster was going to launch and they were going to crush me like a bug. So what did I do? I went over and knocked on the Sony's door because I had a factory that made the TFT, the little digital display on the back of the camera. So I cut a deal and say, hey, Sony, how about I make those TFTs for you? And I made more money selling TFTs to Sony than I ever made selling Casio cameras. Huh. You know, being a unicorn is great, but whatever the idea is, trust me, somewhere, somewhere in the world, somebody is at worst six months behind you. They're going to be there. So, how do you? First trick is to what does people want? Why? Why do they want to buy it? Who wants to sell it? Why? Because if you can't sell it, you're not going to go anywhere. And then, you know, how? So, how are you going to distribute? It? And if you distribute it, it can be replicated. You're not going to survive long.
2: Yeah, what I'm hearing is a lot of times when we talk about Silicon Valley B2B companies, we talk about how to market the product, right? How to get people to know about the product and how to convert these people to to sign up. But what I'm hearing from you is a lot of times the the marketers work, especially for enterprise B2B companies is to think about distribution or think about various ways to expand the business, which not necessarily has to be fall into the box of marketers job, right? Like a lot of things you are talking about is actually business Element is actually yeah. partnership.
1: Yeah, yeah. If you think about, you know, again, yeah, all a, a router is a router is a router. A storage is a storage is a storage. Working at Avnet, which was one of the best business exercises I've ever had. You work for a Disney. Everybody hated me, literally, man. Because and the margins are in. They talk about basis points, fractions of one percent. But you need. That's why you need billions of something to you know buy dinner at the end of the week. And so, you know, if I'm looking to sell one guy's product versus another, if the rep is coming in and buying pizza for us, you know, once a month for everybody in the department, well, guess who we're gonna push? Corinna's a really nice person, man. She buys us pizza. Ah, uh, that's ninety-nine. You know, schmooze marketing. I, I had one tenure outside of tech, Archer Services you know, the largest courier facilities management company. And the sale was not the lawyer, it was to the legal secretary. And so you give emery boards or a ruler or a letter opener, you know, Chotsky's, and you invite the legal administrator to lunch. Now, if, if Holly is the duck, I'll invite you, Corinna, my customer, and Jay, my customer, and I'll invite you all to lunch. And I'm not doing any selling. I'm going to let you two sell holly and why it's such a good idea to do business with ben why because you want the free lunches coming along schmooze selling is an art that's becoming a lost art but it still has a huge place most digital marketers never carried a bag and never sold whereas anybody that's sold understands that
0: yeah i think at the end of the day like Yes, coming from having experience with sales, being married to a salesperson, I think people like to buy from people that they like at the end of the day. Like, so even if, especially when you're talking about pretty much apples to apples products and the differentiators are like really hard to delineate, right? Like, that's why I do think you still see a little bit, especially in B2B and even in our like startup side of the world. You know, direct mail still being a thing. And it's really hard for a digital marketer or for like an acquisition marketer to understand the value in schmooze marketing, which is like direct mail and swag boxes and things like that. Because it's like, okay, well, we're spending $500 to send this box to somebody who like, who knows if they'll even buy. But at the end of the day, like, I do fully believe in like trying to create that feeling of relationship with the buyer. And I do think marketing can have. A huge impact on that front.
1: It's interesting, but you know, you always have to find where the other guy isn't. And I learned that very early at Casio. You know, Casio is was very good, but it was the job was not making stuff. The job was keeping the factory busy because Casio made stuff for Panasonic and Sony and Hitachi and everybody else. So it was keeping the factory busy. It changes your perspective when you have to get someone else to sell. So, you know, one of the things I looked for was where is this mostly Sony? Where are they not? Sony focused on Game Boy and stuff for the the little boy. Who was selling stuff to the little girl? Ah, okay, the digital sender. It was a stupid little infrared text message thing. You know, I like you. Do you like me? Across the room. Very useful in a boardroom, by the way. You go where the other people are not. And, again, it helps to have been carrying a bag to appreciate that and figure and look, find a different way.
2: And Bennett, you have worked with a lot of uh, turnaround companies and fixing a lot of things. What are some of the most common challenges these companies have?
1: Not understanding the money and not understanding Hmm. how the money goes around the table. So I I joined, when I came back from China, I had a couple of friends on the, the board of Earthlink. World's first ISP, it should have been Google. Huh. And they didn't. And so I went in there, and they were all failed big telco. They were at Frontier and Global Crossing, and guys whose pocket I used to pick for years. First day I went in, and I looked at the numbers, and I looked at the GM, and I said, "We're out of business in 32 quarters." He said, yeah. Nobody in the room understood. They were losing 20 percent, 22 percent year on year. That is an unbelievable churn. They were literally going out of business. Uh, we got a problem kids. We've got to put the fingers on the dike. Okay. How are we going to do that? Okay. Well, let's figure out how, who's going to churn and why? Oh, we don't have any money. They had literally for a billion and a half revenue. They had a $3 million marketing budget and the CMO, good storyteller, never sat on a sales call, never sat with care or to be in a service business and be a CMO and do that. Sorry, sidebar. Let's figure out how we're going to – so they had no money for any software. So, okay, I used Excel and used what I call a six-box methodology to figure out a customer's propensity to churn. And guess what? Here's a list. And every executive in this company is going to spend one day a week, and we're going to dial for dollars. Here's the promotion for this. Here's the promotion for that. Here's the promotion for this. Here's the questions for ask. I don't care if you're the vice president or whatever. We're saving our butt. Dialing to save your job. And that's another, that's a quality of a CMO is to be able to take apart a balance
3: sheet. Things like the time value of money. In these turnarounds, Ben, I'm curious. I know you said in the beginning that often it's, what are they paying you? And what are you going to get? But if you were to move that aside, is is there ever been a situation where you don't believe the company is able to turn it around? Like, are there any triggers or levers and pulleys you look for in the business to make that decision or believe that, you even have the capability of turning it around or not?
1: No, I, I no. There is no situation that you can't, you know, again, not on wood. I've never had a failure. I've been extremely lucky. And I can give lots of examples of that. Better to be lucky than smart. And I definitely am opposed to trial for that methodology. I think everybody can find a solution to it, you can't always solve the problems. A company's culture is one example. And a lot of high growth, you know, startup situations I've been involved with, um, that's very often the case. And, and, you know, maybe the CEO, okay, humanizing technologies. The former governor of Indiana had developed a, basically it was a pixel capture, like ProtoPage or Netflix or ProtoPage and, you know, NetVines capture a a view. And he thought he had reinvented the internet. And uh, he was... Churning three hundred and twenty thousand dollars a month. Holy. Okay, let's look at the book You know, First thing is get control of the money. Understand where your your you know your budget, where the money's being spent. And within the first month, I was able to cut the the spend burn down to about one hundred and twenty five thousand a month without getting rid of anybody, without you know laying people off. You know we don't need to be on two floors of an office building. Let's all condense into one, and let's lease out the, the other. Floor. I mean stuff like that. That, that's job one. The other is, okay, Vincent, George, you haven't reinvented. You've been in business seven years and you have no customers. But you've got this thing that does something very cool. You've got this local search capability. I know somebody over at Google that might want that. I know somebody at Microsoft that could use it. I know somebody at Time Warner that could. You make a couple of phone calls and now he's making $2 million a month by busting up the technology. So, you know, there's a lot of different business. Business is about pulling levers, levers of business. And once you understand that, it's a lot easier to figure out how you can make adjustments, one, to increase profitability, but also to fix it.
3: that makes sense? It makes a lot of sense. And, and these levers, I, is this kind of a thing where you just learned by being thrown into the deep end? And by example, did you learn it in school? Did you get a mentor? I mean, how do you go about learning these these levers To scale massive companies?
1: Hard knocks and good luck. (laughs) Okay. Uh, My first job, well, all right, my first job was selling radio advertising. And then I was, as I slip into radio, I was the afternoon (laughs) drive-time DJ. So the first real job after college was at an interconnect, a very large labor subcontractor, 700 techs. And we literally, it was a time when we had riots in Los Angeles Hmm. and they were literally burning data centers to the ground. And all the guys I worked with were men in their late 50s and 60s, ex at and guys. Okay. And they're like, yeah, okay, well, let's get a cup of coffee and go put that up. Oh, that's how we respond to a crisis. Huh. So years later, when I'm at British Telecom, and the IRA are threatening my data centers in the UK. It's like, yeah, okay. Huh. You learn that the value of data, I, I had the good fortune, the first day on my job at InfoNet, I had a meeting with the CFO and a guy that was going to be working for me. And he was talking about his global fixed price strategy. He had two little pieces of paper. He had an artificial hand. He was 63. And he was talking and I'm like, oh, huh? Huh? I'm like, my heart's pounding. It's like, oh my God, they're going to fire me. I'm an absolute fraud. I got to manage this guy. Holy moly. And so an hour into it, we take a break and he leaves the room and the CFO turns me, you know, a stereotype New York finance guy. He says, oh, you know, this is my third time through it. I'm starting to get it. It's like, oh, he's exceptional. It's like, oh, yeah. He was an old fashioned quant. A qualitative analyst, he could figure out and model any business strategy that you could think of and tell you whether or not you make making money. He'd get pissed off if they're and find the math errors in Intel chipsets, get pissed and write Intel, A-type person. <laughs> and so after the meeting, we went back to my office and he said, well, you know, what do, what do you think? And I said, well, it's real interesting, Ted, but tell me, what would be the impact if I gave a discount term, time value of money? I hadn't thought of that. Well, and he came back in a half an hour with a tiny little graph with two lines and a whole bunch of little numbers. And he said, you know, I don't think we're going to get hurt because my ability to buy bandwidth appreciates faster than your ability, than your proposed discount. Let's down talk. And and he became a mentor, even though he was working for me. And that's another quality that I think becoming a CMO, becoming a, a grand poobah, is listening to those around you, listening to your own gut, listening to your family. You have to be humble. Listening to your valuing your network of friends and bouncing ideas off of people. You know, I, I launched my video phone at Casio. I was hired to launch the LT70P video phone, and it was. I sent one to the CEO. He used it once and never again. I sent it my my mother-in-law. Used it once, wouldn't use it again. Oh, I think I've got a problem here. Now, eating your own dog food. And again, not enough people, not enough marketers do that. Not enough marketers, secret shop their own organization.
2: And and a lot of people listening to our sessions are aspiring CMOs. What have you observed the difference, the characteristics that differentiates a, let's say, a director of marketing to a VP of marketing to a CMO? And what are some of the career advices of someone who aspire to be a CMO you want to give them?
1: That's a great question. Get as much experience as you can at every level that you can and at the same time be humble the best thing in marketing now i i can do a few things fairly well data is one of them i've got 25 patents and you know the hadoop ecosystem i've done over 100 large big big data projects but if i go into a room with a data scientist guess what i get like so blown in california like for sure in a heartbeat you want to treat Others, the way you would a university professor. Because even if you are a PH friggin D, there's always somebody in the room smarter than you. But you get everything you want, especially with engineers. If you approach them and ask questions and they teach you something, they will open up the playbook and give you everything. And that's a huge component. Going to every department. Again, it was bad for me. Infonet. If you wanted to launch a new product at Infonet, you had to pass the Tiger team, which was literally 11 women, customer care, service, legal, all the little people I'm the grand poobah. I got held up the longest of anybody in the history of the company for one of my problems. I even bought them milk and cookies to one meeting and found out half of them were lactose intolerant. I mean, I failed it in every way imaginable. But it taught me to go and socialize an idea, talk to people before you you know, get to launch. I developed an entire methodology of, Sending a launch pricing, here's the whole program 90 days before the launch to everybody in the world, every country manager in the world, what do you think? Give me feedback. Okay, here's an update on it at 45 days. Okay, here's the 15-day we're going to be going live. You know, it's been tested, yada, yada, yada. And that became the, the boilerplate of launching. The other thing is managing your time and, and multiple categories, multiple product lines. That that's the distinction I think between a director and a VP level. You know, typically a, a product management reports into product marketing. Product marketing reports into a director, which has numerous product lines, directors report into vice presidents that become category managers. And that then reports into a, a grand poop type. You know, again, at each level you need to empower and trust, you need to understand what they're doing and communicate at every level. And that's, I think, the huge, the successful VP or whatever, do they go talk to the lowliest engineer, the lowest, you know, guy pulling cable in the mud in a manhole, you got to understand the business you're dealing with, every aspect. Because again, marketing is not about revenue, it's about profit. And so, Again, those levers of business, what can I change? It's not only sales and marketing and the promotion and campaign. It's can I do something in my distribution to improve it and make it more efficient? That'll actually have a bigger impact on my bottom line than any promotion that I could
3: do. What what would you say to... A business owner, if you were to bring that same phrase that you just said, that it's not just about the campaigns or the selling or this and that, it's also the arms of distribution and it's the operational side of it, what would you say to some of the leaders of businesses that might shoot back and say, well, this is exclusive for operations or business development? Marketing doesn't get involved here.
1: Again, marketing, in my definition, is the glue between every organization and the business. You cannot be a good marketing team if you don't understand everything of the business. Now, my wife working in food, she was out on the line when Reddy Packed, the salad in the bag. She'd go out on the line but when she launched uh, Fresh Food Segments. She was with the women and men, mostly women, cutting segments of the oranges. Well, how many oranges can you do in an hour? You can't do a pricing if you don't understand that. If you can't see what the impacts are, that's the big difference, I think, between a product marketer and a you know who has to do all of that and profit and do the PR fun fluffy stuff. So if you want to be a VP of something, you got under. That's why I said that iceberg. Most of the work is under the waterfall.
0: All right, Bennett. Well, we are close to time. And so going to wrap up here. I really, really appreciate you joining us and kind of sharing your story and just all of the insight. Thank you, Holly. Thank you, Jay, for jumping on. And we will see everyone next week at the same time. Thanks so much, Bennett. Thank
2: Thanks you, so you have much. fun,
1: guys. Take care.